Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending 16th of June. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. We're off next week, so savour this podcast featuring <laughs> Australia's favourite comedy, Kates, McLennan and McCartney, who joined us upon the worldwide release of their Tassie Noir comedy, Deadlock. Also coming up, food critic Michael Harden munches his way to virtue as he steps us through consuming invasive species. Water bubblers tepid with a slice of lemon or over ice, I asked how do people enjoy their water? And Vanessa Taholka takes us through the latest gadget news with the announcement of the Apple Vision Pro headset and how it stacks up in the market of augmented reality. Writer, director and author Alana Lodkina joins us to discuss Petrol, a unique vision of friendship and filmmaking that blurs the line between fairy tale and the realities of life in Melbourne. And that reflects on the house party from the perspective of host and also neighbour. Melbourne's own Triple R. The Cates, McCartney and McLennan are one of Australia's most beloved and bleakest <laughs> comedy duos, having taken the kitchen blowtorch to cooking trends with their viral 15-minute eps of The Catering Show, Breakfast TV with their hit ABC half-hour parody, Get Crackin', and now the pair have gone the full hour, casting a satirical eye to crime drama in their feminist noir comedy set against a bucolic backdrop with a rising body count. Set in Tasmania, Deadlock is the hotly anticipated whodunit, now available on Amazon Prime, and to tell us about it, the former Triple R broadcasters join us now. Kate and Kate, welcome back to Breakfast. <laughs> oh, well, it's good to be to be back on the uh, back on the back stage. On the airwaves, <laughs> the airwaves, I sure, believe they're yeah. called in the business. Thanks for saying that we're former Triple R presenters because I think I did two spots in 2011. Yeah, we no, we had that show called Lead Balloon for a little while. That's... That was like a comedy festival review show. Mm. And then of course, can't really say that that means that we're, you know, we should oh, be on the I phone I should be on no, the wall definitely. though. So. <laughs> I think I was your first guest. On you, that comedy you, on the Lead yes. Balloon, oh, yes. Mm. Uh, and the the lowdown what do you mean the load? No, the download. The download. Yeah, that's what that's what the lowdown. The lowdown. We gave you the download. On the low, the <laughs> yeah. lowdown on the download. Yeah, with Jezza and um, and Edmonds, which was lots and lots of fun. Yeah, and now you hit the big time so much you turn up late for interviews. So. <laughs> we forgot. Yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's a qualifier. We forgot how to get here. We forgot which one was Ligon Street and which one was Nicholson Street yeah. because... We, I don't go across the grid terribly much, <laughs> for, or I, like, which is code for I don't read my <laughs> um, Yeah, but it's very nice to be here. It feels like we, um, like whatever we do, we always come on. Like you guys are very generous to let us come on every time. I remember. I know we it's came like mum and dad on. checking in. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, How's it going? Yeah. How's it going? You okay? We we do you need we to do came washing? on and did an interview with the catering show. I remember that like the the bang on the day that it was released. Yeah. Like you know maybe even like the hour that that it was released. <laughs> we came and did an interview and like we watched the numbers go up in real time as we were doing the interview and that was you know so it feels like this is sort of like a a rite of passage. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask on the numbers going up because that is something that you can obviously track. And now that you're in a big streaming behemoth, mm, you don't yeah. know anything, do you? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that must be hard. Know. It's none of my business. <laughs> yeah. I'm so happy about not knowing it. It's it's good. Like occasionally there are websites that can track this stuff and then occasionally a well-meaning person will send us those numbers. <laughs> and I, I couldn't, like, I, you know, I shut it down so quickly. <laughs> yeah. I go, no. Ignorance no. being bliss, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Now, you're in Tasmania. I was thinking that how close... So it's a mystery crime drama set mm. in Tasmania. How close was the working title going to be uh, the catering incident? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> mate. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Of course you well, do. The working title she for... She loves a, a pun. <laughs> for a very long time was Funny Broadchurch. Yes. Which obviously there are things within Broadchurch, if you've seen Broadchurch, that we yep. wouldn't... You can never make funny. Um, yeah. But we love that idea of doing something that was, you know, a small town where you, you know, there's a body um, and each episode you kind of, you know, look at who done it. Um, I want to watch it now um, after hearing this because I, I listened to a post... Yeah, Broadchurch. Oh, you you talk about it with, no, with oh, Olivia Coleman. Yeah. She's so great. Yeah, like, she's I brilliant. Mean, yeah, we just thought, okay, well, let's try and make a show that has, you know, like these characters that, you know, and actors who are really funny who can kind of straddle doing comedy and drama, which we've kind of, like, I mean, Kate Box, who plays our lead Dulcie in mm. the show, she's just so... She's so funny, but we've asked her to kind of be the straight person in this. And she's still very, very funny, but she holds it down um, from a dramatic perspective as well. So, Yeah, how was it kind of transitioning from, like, writing something that, like, um, the catering show and then moving into, like, this one-hour crime drama show? What was that like? Yeah, Look, we cried a lot. <laughs> um, but, I mean, we had also done – we did get cracking in between them, so we went from a 15-minute – we did two seasons of 15 course. minutes and then we yep. went to a half hour. Um, and it was sort of, I think that allowed us to kind of, well, basically learn how to write yep. a half hour thing. Um, but, I mean, it's easier than writing sketch. Mm. It's crime is so hard, but sketch is the worst thing I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> and I've also heard that in, in between there was, of course, Slushy, the yeah. audible project that kind of you said was a really useful opportunity to extend some of those kind of narrative storytelling techniques. Exactly right, because, yeah, like, like I say, Get Kraken really was ostensibly a sketch show and, and we hadn't really had terribly much experience writing a, a half hour or sort of a, a, a narrative comedy. Um, yeah, so we had... We had the idea for Slushy. Um, we had you were quite obsessed with Antarctica. I still like am. You, you still, <laughs> am. Uh, still are. Um, and we really wanted to make that into a TV show. Yeah, because um, it was built as a, a comedy, a climate change yeah, comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, we got a price. We on really swung um, things around with that. <laughs> You're welcome, guys. <laughs> but Planet we, safe. We put through like this idea to screen Australia, and they were like, "How how much money do you think it would cost to make that show?" And we sort of did a price. We got a producer, mate of ours, Andy Walker, who produced Deadlock. Yeah. Um, he sort of did some numbers on it, and it was something like eighteen million pounds <laughs> an episode. Was the closest kind of example we had had of something set and like that's probably not an abc budget so when um audible you know asked us if we had any, any ideas we thought, well that's a great way to you yeah. know be able to tell that story the sound of wind costs not very good. <laughs> yeah. you know, not 18 yeah. you know, million pounds that's yeah. for sure um yeah. yeah but that was kind of the that was the uh the training ground really and then we sort of just made it up yeah. we sort of made up how doing to write the crime. crime and trying to combine crime and comedy and it kind of became like a conversation we had for the whole time like how much when when can we do comedy and drama at the same time do we have to sort of weave them in and so let them have a moment each you know it became it was like a conversation we had until literally like the grade you know the very final process and the tonal balance is something that you mentioned also even with the marketing the communication around it is something that is yeah as you say an evolving conversation is that right yeah it's um it's been really interesting but mercifully 
like we, we had a lot of support from Prime in terms of them trusting us and kind of trusting the evolution of the show. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and we also had a really good creative team who also wanted – who were interrogating, like, how much we could push it and not being precious if we said, hey, no, and then also pushing back on us if we were like, let's do this, and they're like that, you know, just yeah, naming. Like- you know, it was just – it was, again, it was, you know, it's – very collaborative, so it was really good. Yeah, like we'd have conversations like putting that prop in that corner of the frame <laughs> is too much, but opening the show with a naked man <laughs> with his pubes on fire <laughs> is fine. It's fine. Okay? Yeah. So, and people are like, Do, you know, what are the, what's the rule? And it's like you just have to ask us every single day <laughs> yeah. what the rule is yeah. and we'll let you know. We'll let you know and it then, we'll, and then yeah. later on, 24 hours later, go. We'll, after it's been shot, we'll go, we were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, it looks magnificent. What's like spending that sweet Bezos coin on your comedy. Yeah, it looks incredible. Yeah, I it mean, really does. We, we yeah. knew if we were going to do something that was sort of sitting in the world of that genre of doing, um, you know, like a Scandi noir, you, you know, something that had a prestige drama kind of look mm. about it, that we, we kind of knew that that was going to cost money and so that was you know I guess you know speaking in very crude terms it was like well there were only a certain amount of options in terms of who could pay for that and luckily um, someone did want to pay for it so that was good um, but like we wanted it to look really beautiful because I think also coming off the back of Get Crackin' which you know morning TV is hot orange oh, it's, like, it's such an ugly ugly world in so many different respects. And, and so, uh, like a temporal panic attack. Like yeah, it was just but such a so fun fast. world, but yeah, yeah. very yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. So we I'm wanted you to, thought so. We wanted to make something that kind of, you know, still had the pace, you know, for us, like we like writing comedy where people talk very quickly, but we also <laughs> wanted to have these moments where there was breath and there was, you know, like there's some of the shots in you oh, know, this amazing. series that you'll see Tasmania kind of really sort of on show. And, you know, when we saw that coming through in the rushes it was like you know there was a lot of um us kind of um you know talking about our DOPs and just oh my god yeah. <laughs> oh, you're yeah. right did, so, you, yeah. did you feel welcome there with the animals with, with, did with you, their animals yeah. thanks for asking yeah. <laughs> um there absolutely was we we do have a we have an animal tally like if you go to the special features in prime video there's like an x-ray thing you can go to and we have a little tally of every time an McCartney animal appears has written on screen <laughs> like after we delivered the series they were like can you write these little you know these trivia bits for yeah. um, the x-ray and you spent like weeks oh. doing it yeah it really yeah yeah you, it became an ADHD kind of little funnel. Yeah, I really hyper-fixated on it. Um, I don't regret a single moment of it. I would have added more animals in there except, um, uh, you know, the producer had a word to us, Andy had a word to us. Um, yeah, but there's, you know, there's a king snake. No, yeah. no, a tiger snake, sorry, called oh. King. Um, who Is that was the, in the opening shot? Opening shot. Yep. Um, he was he was excellent on set. Oh, good. To, he did good do to a hear. little nervous poo though, <laughs> so we had to shut down shut down for a second to get him clean. He up. only did one take. We he only, only did get one take. take. One oh, take. One take. Oh, one take. Though, but what he but did, he nailed extraordinary. It. It's like he nailed it, and then 
shut himself and they went, that's it, I'm done. <laughs> really yeah. set the scene, yeah. very yeah. ominous and then Bell. God, yeah. yeah. Um, what about your collaboration going back? Was it whiskey fueled and you were never, you know, late nights and now it's, yeah. what is it now? Sure, sure, Dan. That's <laughs> exactly like yeah. always, We've always been whiskey fueled. No, yeah. I gave up whiskey a long time ago because if I have one drop of whiskey, I will start crying about how <laughs> okay. I could have made it as a dancer. Having only done one jazz ballet class in 1988, <laughs> was that for the bicentennial? Uh, it wasn't, but you know, yeah. <laughs> That's, who's the chick who wrote Fleabag? I've gone completely blind. Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Like I remember Bridge. reading an interview of hers, and she's like, you know, I wrote this, you know, scrapped an episode and rewrote it, and it was, you know, stayed up until like three o'clock in the morning drinking red wine, typing in my bed, yeah. and I'm like that. Her, the image of her doing that is so vastly different to how we work because, you know, we have children and we get up really early. and I need to get picked up we, at 3.30 in the afternoon. Yeah, and that comes around anxious. quickly, I imagine. Um, <laughs> also, our necks are stuffed from the way that we write. So, you, like, you write with, like, periscope glasses on lying on the floor because you can't, like, your neck can't cope. Like, yeah. we're just... Yeah, it's the the romantic idea of... Periscope glasses, for yeah, real. So, you, yeah, you lie on the ground <laughs> and then you have your laptop balanced on your... basically on your stomach, on your abdomen. And then if you wear your glasses... I mean, I wear periscope glasses over my glasses. I'll send you a photo. And, um, yeah, and then you can see with your... Like L-shaped. Yeah, oh. yeah, like a periscope, it's like so a glamorous. human submarine. It's um, Yeah, but there was... I mean, there were a lot of late nights. Like, we really did work our bums off in yeah. in um where were we literally but um but there, there was just no whiskey in answer <laughs> yeah. to that question no i mean it, the evolution of time you know like yeah, when you're right. young and excited and enjoy collaboration and now you oh, enjoy you, collaboration you, and now it's just a chore <laughs> No, I, th- I think we still really enjoy it. Like, I think there's something really, like, both of us really get very, very excited by trying to nut a problem out. Mm. And, you know, we've kind of gotten to this point now where we go, okay, we, we know there's a problem, but we'll, we know we're going to find a solution. And there's something very satisfying. Like, we've just sort of started working um, up some new ideas for something else over the last couple of days. And both of us, like... Take a break, girls. We're just, no. we're just, we can't help ourselves, yeah. but we just, like I said... McCartney a message last night just going my brain is so sore yeah. and just you know breaking story on something and like it's still very exciting to us we still really like working with it oh, yeah, oh, we do. Don't yeah. We. yeah we do don't it's we just... <laughs> yeah, yeah 100% <laughs> and do you think you've got more murders in you is there I mean I've always got more <laughs> But is is it a rich vein, or do you think you've yeah you've, you've hacked the genre and you're retired? Oh, hack the genre! Now we're done. <laughs> yeah, perfect. We've done it perfectly. Yeah. And now we have nothing else to say. No, I think it's a. I think we always anticipated this being sort of like a, an anthology series. Um, so, like that's sort of yeah. We have ideas for like what to what to do next. Um, and we could just be like setting ourselves up for a real fall by investing in those ideas, but we feel we just gotta just you know keep thinking about it. So, yeah. You know, in the event that maybe it might happen. Oh, we all benefit from your collaboration and friendship. So thank you very much. Uh, this, that was way too sentimental for both of you. I don't know what to do. We just went into an Irish. It has been an absolute honour, and we are grateful to provide this community. You are welcome. Uh, Deadlock is on Amazon Prime. Check it out now, although they won't know if you've seen it because they keep the stats Uh, quiet. Uh, Kate and Gate, thanks very much. Thanks. Woo! That's right. Triple R. 
I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Michael Harden's here to spread his culinary observations through our conscious like an out-of-control weed. Morning, Michael. <laughs> That's me. Thank you. That's the most beautiful thing anybody's ever said. <laughs> uh, where, where are you taking us? Um, I was, last week, as I do sometimes, eating at Attica, one of uh, the great restaurants of Melbourne, and uh, it was on the one of the... Dishes on the you know, multi-course menu was called "Eat the Problem Lasagna," and um, which was Ben Shuri's uh, take on lasagna. Which so of course it wasn't just your regular flat thing; it was like a little round rotolo of lasagna. But the ragu was um, wild deer, wild boar, and wild buffalo. So all invasive species in Australia that he's used in the ragu. So it was this whole idea that sort of stemmed from a book, a couple of that was put out a couple of years ago by um, Kersha Kashele, I think her, is the, her name. Um, she is married to David Walsh of Mona fame, and she put out a book called "Eat the Problem," a which beautiful was but expensive, book. very like a yeah, five hundred and forty page book that was like three hundred dollars worth, and it was kind of like it was a, definitely it was a, it was an art book she's an artist um it was an art book but it was also sort of a provocation and it was like the whole idea about killing and consuming invasive species as an alternative to farming industrial animals so it was mostly eating animals but of course she sort of being an artist took it sort of to fairly like full-on degree so it was sort of like there's recipes for cats and there's recipes for foxes and you know all those sort of things toads uh, yeah cane toads you know that sort of thing um and sort of culminating in a recipe for a hemlock cocktail that would kill humans because we are the most invasive and destructive species on the planet so um they it does come in with a warning that this is art, so don't drink the cocktail. <laughs> but, uh, but it's kind of like it's a, it's a sort of an interesting idea that it's sort of been around for a while because Australia does have a, a large amount of invasive species that are kind of trashing the environment and, uh, you know, that, that we could eat. But it is a tricky problem. You know, you're sort of looking at like, you know, you're looking at starting at things like rabbits and hares and pigeons, but you're also talking deer and buffalo and boar and horse and camel and, you know, all these sort of things. And then you go, into the fisheries, you've got sort of, you know, you've got carp in the fisheries, and then you've got things like blackberries and um, olives even, you know, that are sort of like there's, there's things called feral olives which are actually a real problem in certain areas because they were from olive groves that were planted and then abandoned in the 19th century and then the birds are eating the olives and then pooing out the seeds all over the place and these and they're very hard the olive trees are very hardy and they will take over so there's a place on kangaroo island that they've actually it's a company called i think it's called wild harvest and they make olive oil from these feral olive trees so you know when olive trees generally when they're harvested they're not a problem because they're you know they're, they're getting the fruit they're very conscious that they don't want birds eating all their fruit because it you know profits blah 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 but these ones so they go in and they they harvest these wild olive trees and, and press it and turn it into olive oil and eating olives and those sort of things. So there's kind of these nice ways of doing things. Um, uh, it's actually a tricky... It's a really tricky problem because it's like there's things like... Because we've got... Like Australia has the largest feral camel population in the world. There's like, you know, more than a million camels roaming around and they, they're really harsh on the environment. The meat is really good. There's, there's, there's a small export market that's going over mainly to uh, North Africa and the Middle East. Um, and so there's a little market in Australia as well. Like you can get camel meat in certain um, butchers, you know, particularly halal butchers in, in Melbourne. But it's sort of 
like it's one of those things where uh, it's a very tricky meat to actually process because you've got to go and find the camels and then there are a lot of in remote areas and then you've got to transport them and you know all of those sort of things so it comes up and then there's the other problem with eating the problem is that things like that it means that if you get if you establish a market with these particular things then there's people that are don't, they don't want to eradicate they don't want to eradicate the market because it's business so sort of all of a sudden there's not the same push to eradicate these species it's sort of to maintain a stable population so that you know you can maintain your business bit of a catch 22 yeah mm. exactly but there's a couple of success stories i think and one of the, the like the major one is probably venison wild deer um, up until a few years ago it was illegal in particularly in new south wales and victoria to um, sell wild venison um, legally. Uh, they had all these rules and regulations about it, but now they've changed that. And so registered hunters can go out and hunt deer um, with permission from the, pro- the properties that they're on. And then there are certified abattoirs that will process the deer. And this way, it's been very attractive to restaurateurs and, and chefs because they can now um, establish the provenance and the quality and the breed of deer that they're actually coming in. Because otherwise, with feral meat, um, it's all often coming from lots of different sources and it's lost in different species and different species eat and cook differently and that sort of stuff so but the deer side of things and you'll see wild venison on a lot of menus around town um, is one of the ones that's actually been a bit of a success like the the guy that um, runs the invasive species council doesn't hold out hope that this is going to eradicate the problem anytime soon but you know it's sort of like anything to do because the deer population is like exploded it's like four million four or five million um, yeah. feral deer around Australia and they spread really quickly and they kind of like you know they it's not you know they eat farmland which is sort of like what a lot of the farmers are but they're also trampling native bush and you know kind of making it difficult for other species um, I think the other uh, success story one of the other success stories well also buffalo buffalo meat and wild boar meat are sort of similar to this sort of thing so they are fairly um, they're not they're not really easily accessible but you can buy wild boar and wild buffalo meat at the victoria market for example and you there's like buffalo meat of wild wild boar meat often on menus like um at uh, the Dastasio restaurants will have like a, a ragu like either in a lasagna or in a like you know a, a roast a slow roasted piece of buffalo boar or buffalo meat on there so there, there's the other one but the other one that I'm, I'm loving at the moment is sea urchins which are one of my favorite things to eat anyway they're sort of so they're, they're, they can be a bit divisive they're fairly intense um, but they're you know this beautiful creamy briny flavor that goes with lots of things um, the sea urchins that we're targeting here the evil evil sea urchins that we <laughs> want to eat because they're delicious but also that because of warming waters they have um the sea urchins have moved south so they they were um native to sort of queensland and new south wales but in victoria and tasmania we never had them and now they're they're moving south and because of the warming waters they're increasing in great numbers they don't have predators and so they're kind of destroying our kelp forests and things like that which are you know absolutely vital to the health of the ocean and the and the fish population so um urchin is sort of like one of those things and the, the the heartening thing is that it is one of those industries where it's very environmentally sustainable it's all hand harvested um and a few divers can do a lot of good by like taking urchins out of the water and there's and it's sort of becoming more and more common on restaurants around the country like the first time that i had like a wild sea urchin was down at a restaurant in hobart called fico and all they did this sea urchin had been pulled out of the water an hour before I ate it. 
So it was super, super fresh. And all they did was they lopped the top off it and then gave me a cheek of lemon and a fork. And you just squeeze the lemon over the sea urchin. It's the roe inside that you're eating. And it's kind of like, and it was so fresh and so salty and so delicious. I was like, I need to just have this all day for breakfast or whatever, <laughs> breakfast, lunch and dinner. And, the, and now I've seen it sort of like I've been travelling around the country a little bit and uh, eating in restaurants and it's everywhere. So it's sort of like I've seen it in risotto, I've seen it in pasta. I had one the other day down at um, Bray in the, in the country um, and it was, it, was like, it was so good. A potato gem, he'd like made a potato gem with a piece of sea urchin roe over the top and then, and then just dabbed with a little bit of native honey on the top of that and it was so good Stop I was it. like you know let's let's do something for the environment <laughs> 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 so. uh, is, can you get a bad sea urchin oh you can get a bad sea and sometimes I think you know people get turned off by sea urchins because some of them that have been preserved like there's because sea urchin obviously is um, for anybody that knows Japanese food like sea urchin is a big thing uni is a big thing in Japanese food and so some of that uni it's been it's it's been preserved and so it is quite intense it has a really intense flavor and it's sort of like it, it is one for you know you have to sort of it's an acquired taste I feel so it's like it's it's much more than an um a, you know than a fresh sea urchin so you, you're going for the freshest mm. that you can get and and then you just build up I quite like the kind of funky nature of the of the Japanese uni um so but I think you know it's sort of like you know if you it's a, a bad anything like you know you're gonna if, if the sea urchin is not good you're going to smell it. Oh, so, oh right. Okay, that'll put you off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So trust your nose. I, uh, do you ever, when you're in a restaurant, close your eyes when you're eating to... Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's moments that it's sort of like, yeah, that it's sort of like, where, and sometimes it's involuntary. Like, I'm, I'm that kind of wanker. It's sort of like, you know, sitting there going, oh, my God. You know, sort of like, it's poetry, you know. It's, but uh, I do, like, you know, it's sort of sometimes it is good to close up one of the senses in order to just kind of really concentrate on what's going on in your mouth. You know, it's kind of like... So uh, I did that the other day, actually, with a, which, with, a, with another thing, which is an invasive weed, which is the nettle, mm. which was... Um, it was in a risotto at um, Tipo Double O in the city, and um, it was a wild nettle risotto that stains the risotto, like, this beautiful green colour as well, and it's kind of just got this beautiful, subtle, peppery deliciousness to it that it's kind of like that I really loved. I, I was... Eating with my eyes closed. <laughs> oh, Could goodness. you go out and pick this nettle yourself? Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. yeah. And there's a, if you you can look around for um, foraging tours around Melbourne, and yeah. they do. They, I think it's, well, there's one called Wild Plants or Wild Herbs, um, and they will take you on a foraging tour to to show you what to look for. So you can look all, and it's all sorts of different plants. Like it's sort of it's nettles, but it's also thistles, and there's all sort of you know little other weeds and everything that you can actually eat safely and are great in you know that you can put them in pasta, you can put them in soup you can eat them as a salad you know all of those sort of things so it's like you know that's another way of eating the problem and uh, (laughs) a good time doing it you can relax michael honey's eating the problem (laughs) and uh, the feral olives are our new favorite band as well (laughs) (laughs) triple r on fm digital online and via the app so if you're walking through the park and you see a water bubbler do you get involved do you will you take a sip from a bubbler I'm not allergic to water bubblers. You're not? No. Oh, yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Good mm. to hear. Well, I just feel, I don't know, I'm just checking the, the the feel on water bubbles. I know some people have a bit of an aversion to them. I see. Maybe, I don't know, just feels a bit unhygienic, even though it's not, but, you know, you're putting your mouth close <laughs> to something that's just out there in public. Other people are doing it. 
I was just curious yeah, to no, get, get the mood on it. I didn't, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it like that. There's definitely bubblers where I play futsal and I kind of regularly get involved yeah. with the Okay, well, bubbler, that's great. So, yeah. so the mood is up. People yeah. are all for the water bubbler. I'm thrilled to hear that. I absolutely get involved with the water bubbler. But yesterday I took a sip, just very thirsty, walking around, backpack on, oh, saw one. I was shook. It was so cold. The water out of (laughs) the bubbler honestly gave me like a brain freeze. Did it? Yeah, and my teeth, you know, when your teeth hurt. And I was just like, it it was, I mean, it was refreshing, but I was really taken aback. And it was that same kind of thing, I guess, about, well, I just got thinking about kind of one, regulation. <laughs> what is the water temperature? What should it be coming out of a bubbler? I haven't done much, like, research. I just a quick Google. I couldn't find anything conclusive. Same as, kind of same scenario as the double boom gate train thing. Like, I think you've got to go deep on it. Mm. You know, you've got to go into different councils, and you know, states we- and territories. It does sound like... Uh, my like- weekend is... My week <laughs> off, actually, is spoken for. Absolutely. And so this was an unfamiliar bubbler. Never encountered it before, but you... Yeah, yeah. Well, and could could we get a little bit more sort of contextual? Yeah, sure. So this is, it is kind of different because I it was in a library, so it's it's a council library, right? But yeah, I guess it's not your typical a bubbler that it's not out in a park. So I guess maybe so there's a possibility that there is some kind of refrigeration involved here. Yeah, they're running a d- different system in there, but it, it still got me thinking. I guess mm. and how you how you take your water like how do you like it because I, I notice my housemate she comes home every day from work mm. first thing she does she gets her favorite cup from out of the cupboard she gets a single ice cube and she gets it a, a glass fills it up from the tap with that ice cube already in the glass yeah and that's just her and I'm like she just loves it but I would never have my water like that. Like, I love tepid water. That's it just... I, well, I Apparently it's absorbed more readily by the body. Yeah, it's, it's very good for you. But yeah. I, I don't know whether I've just absorbed that information and just kind of chosen to like it, but I've been drinking that for years. Yeah, and it just feels... It just feels like it glides through me. <laughs> yeah, it feels nice in my yes. stomach. I find cold water a bit of a, a shock. That's mm. why I was taken aback from this bubbler. So I'll... Um, have a bit of hot water, a bit of cold. If I've got one, a lemon. Excellent. Simple, straightforward, but oh, yeah. it. I find it just invigorating, and it helps me drink more water. Yeah, and it's it's. I really enjoy it. How do you take your water? Well, certainly at a bubbler, I take it after a couple of seconds. <laughs> like if there is any residual E. coli or whatever, I let that <laughs> pass through. Okay, so you do like a preliminary, just to flush out of the bubbler. Yeah, yeah good to hear. Uh, but. Yeah, certainly I tend to not put in ice cubes. Mm. I like to drop in an ice cube once a drink is completed. What? Is that right? I see. Yeah, that oh, makes sense. complete. Yeah, okay. Yes. Uh, and so- I, I find that ice cubes can have an effect on some drinks, not mm. necessarily water, but of course the ice is made of water, where it, I don't know, it makes it more combustible or effervescent. Mm. And so you can't manage the height. Is it, oh yeah, sense? like there's yes. like a the, the buoyancy kind of raises the level of the well, or it even 
maybe refracts the liquid and like it explodes. Oh. Am I just having weird drinks? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. What you, you're you, you pour water on top of ice, yes. and you you are no longer in control. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And it's interesting that you choose to put it in after as well. That it's the final touch. I feel like that's more. I feel like the if you were to pour the beverage over the ice, mm. it kind of sinks it down into the bottom of the cup. I don't know, weighted. I just feel like it's maybe that it's the dropping in of the ice cube that's maybe causing some kind of friction or... Maybe. I mean, the, the dropping down of the ice cube also creates a clink that is kind of... Arousing. I was wondering oh, about the, yeah, the haptic <gasps> feedback that you're getting because with temperature differentials, if mm. you've got the ice and you're pouring the liquid over the ice, it creates this kind of rapid expansion that produces a cracking sound, there you go. which is different from the chink, but maybe equally pleasant. Depending there on. is, yeah, mm. I do get a kick out of both, mm. but, uh, but you're right. Uh, so the reason why I'm using the ice is to... Uh, m- is to adjust the temperature, but mm. it's that temperature differential mm. that is causing yeah. the chemistry. The, the friction. Yeah, okay. And what's your ideal temp? Like, do you like a really fresh I, yeah, I like cold, cold. glass? This yeah. sounds like my ideal bubbler. Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you the coordinates. <laughs> um, I hate when you put too much ice in, though. Sometimes I feel silly. Like, you just all clank and yeah. no real liquid, and it's hitting your teeth. Yes, that's that's a design flaw, I think, is those huge ice blocks. Like I get it, so they don't melt too quickly. How big are we talking? Um, like I guess like one point five right. centimeters, I think. And they, but they're quite maybe deeper, maybe like closer to two centimeters. So is, is this the circular sort of whiskey ice cube? Mm, um, no, they're like really big, thick cubes oh, I see of ice. I think and I've seen these. Yeah, they're just a bit cumbersome. And in the wrong glass, it can be a real barrier to the beverage. And sometimes I've found myself sipping, you know, maybe it's it's a Friday G&T or something like that. And I yeah. just feel like a fool because I'm getting more ice on the teeth. Yes. <laughs> and I'm hungry for that drink. <laughs> I'm hungry for that liquid. Yes. And it was like if I just felt stupid. Well, you, oh, so no, I prefer you, a smaller cube, I guess, is what I'm getting no, at. That makes perfect sense. It Thank definitely you. facilitates the... Yeah. But judging by the your finger, it looks like it's a couple of inches maybe. Oh, even. really? Yeah. God, I need to look at a ruler but, again. But uh, we were in... Uh, there was, we went to dinner with some lucky listeners and we were incredibly lucky for to go to Attica. It was oh, a cool. Radiothon prize. And one of the, the ice cube that they offer, and I'm not sure how common this is, is totally transparent there is no cloudiness there's no white it is like it's plucked from <laughs> the north pole wow. using an ice core yeah and years later it's i think about it all the time <laughs> you still think about yeah. it. what did you have it with it was just plain on a plate or in a glass uh, well, it may have been whiskey or I, I, I no, no, we didn't, it wasn't, ed- it was there for the drink purposes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, if you feel silly about answering it that way, I led you down a garden path oh, by yeah. going, did, was it on a plate? Yeah. <laughs> Just because you, you described it so visually. And that's what we're expecting from uh, Bron uh, on Community Cup to bring out with the oranges as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that is a standard. Triple R. Oh. 
tech visionary Vanessa Holger joins us for Tech Talk. Morning, Vanessa. Good morning. You're far too kind. Uh, Now, lots of news in gadget world, huh? There certainly is. Look, the Worldwide Dev Conference comes on once a year and it's Apple's chance to really set the agenda for what they're investing in, what they want people to be excited about and what they want developers to start working on. Uh, So it's something people really look forward to and Apple CEO Tim Cook carved out 40 minutes on the first day of the Worldwide Dev Conference this year to focus on Apple's Vision Pro. So it's their foray into the mixed reality headset field. It is a field that's full of, um, you know, strong products that are trying to all gain traction and all find a killer app. Um, And it's, you know, pretty reasonable to say that none of them have really nailed that at the moment. So it is a space for big bets. You know, people are investing a lot of money. Who's going to own the space? And Apple have tremendous um, record for products and being the people to swoop in, not necessarily um, the first with the technology, in fact, usually not, but often to go, we can see where this is going and this is how we think it should be done. How can we optimise a user experience? How can we make those decisions about the level of complexity or the level of whatever that we think people want and pitch something in the right space in the market? So the questions we're asking ourselves after this pitch is, do we buy the vision and have they nailed it in a way other people haven't nailed it? And it's so uncertain right now. Um, You've got just as many commentators saying yes and no. Uh, And... So it's not released yet, is it? It's not released, no. It's not going to be released until halfway through next year. Mm -hmm. And the prospective price is 3500 US dollars. I'm just going to use US dollars today because while we can convert, it's a point in time and we're going to talk about maybe the prices of a lot of competitor products as well. Um, I think... You know, there's something, there's a few things there. One is that the the entry price point is huge, even for, you know, an early adopter type audience, it's still hefty. But that does speak to the complexity of the the hardware that they've got going on in this thing. And it's pretty, it's pretty high spec. We're not going to go into the specs today. If you want the specs, you can read them anywhere. And I don't think that's the most interesting thing about it, even though, of course, it's a, you know, differentiator for what they're sort of doing in the market. But I think the other thing is, you know, the sort of lead time that they're talking about. Uh, Apple have been fairly good at hitting their lead times, occasionally beating them, sometimes missing them by a month or two, but still they're usually fairly good at at scoping out when they're going to deliver. Um, This is quite a long lead time compared to other things they've announced at worldwide dev conferences and I think that speaks to their concern about you know having to get it in front of the sort of people who write the apps for these platforms um, and that is an exciting part of where we are now and that it's it's febrile ground for if you wanted to make something new you know, a multi-sensory experience. Uh, now's the time to be experimenting and doing that sort of thing. But let's let's talk about, you know, what does it look like? Uh, hopefully a lot of people have seen the pictures. What did you think? It looked to me like using an iPhone on your head. Is that mm. right? Like it- yeah, it's a bit like ski goggles, mm. you know. Yeah, iPhone strapped in front of your eyes. Bulky. Yeah, it is mm. bulky. And that they were saying FaceTime, just regular apps. Absolutely. They uh, they did show a way that you could sort of navigate through existing things. Um, they announced their partnership with Disney Plus uh, at the launch and said from the first day you'll be able to access that lot of content, uh, which is, you know, a big, a big draw card for them. It's something to draw people in. Um, they 
Yeah, they they use all this sort of sensor technology. So there's eye tracking and there's uh, vocal commands that they take in and then there's gestures. So they're really focusing on the, if you imagine your eyes are a cursor to navigate, say, your menu of like your, your different apps and things. Um, and then you're using your thumb and your forefinger as a pinch gesture. So it's, it's, um, it's focus and pinch, uh, which is a new sort of interaction mode. And that's something that you start going wow, that's really simple. They've obviously thought about this and how they can communicate it and how will people get used to navigating in this environment without typing. Because you're right, with regards to the history of Apple products, they have been quite revolutionary in terms of introducing new modalities. Yes, exactly. And modality is exactly the word, yeah, for this, um, precisely. Uh, And people for a long time have said, look, it's crazy that we sit around staring at screens. And that's something else to get into here. So a lot of the critics are like, you know what? This is the technology for the apocalypse. This is the, you know, immersive, you know, focus on this to the exclusion of the world sort of technology that um, is right for this, you know, these dystopian times. And I'm like, okay, that's a very grim (laughs) take on this. Maybe it's true. Um, We do know that, you know, the screen, it is an AR and a VR headset, so it is translucent and you can see through um, what's happening. But it's, it's kind of funny the way they've achieved this. So a lot of other headsets have just used clear glass and sort of done things that way. And from the pictures, it looks like this does this. But I'm also reading about how it is using cameras to feed through details from the real world into your glasses um, to make the experience better somehow like the performance so until we try these things I think it's actually quite hard to understand what are people describing and how can I get my hands on this mystery tech and explore Mm. it do you think it'll do things different to other existing VR headsets that are already out there yeah they definitely have said that they are doing that and lots of that's in the different arrangement of sensors the different intensity of the pixel display in front of you because you can imagine when something's so close to you it's like did you ever scoot up really close to your old crt television and you could see the pixels break down into the red blue green um and nowadays that would be a very rare experience for people (laughs) because (laughs) tvs have come a long way but it's a similar thing the closer the screen gets to you the more you can distinguish between pixels so the more you need to saturate that field display in front of you um so look they're doing this I guess let's let's think a little about their competition. Um, Meta purchased Oculus um, in 2014 for two billion. Uh, then they rebranded the Oculus, and now they're calling it the Meta Quest. Um, Quest Two is out now. It's about 300 US dollars. So that is, you know, let's put a little benchmark in the field out there of what people are willing to pay. They've got a Quest Three coming out in September this year, potentially for about 500 US. Um, so that really undercuts them. But then are people raving about the experience? We don't know, like, what's going to happen with that next Quest version. Googled last, famously launched in 2013, failed to find an audience, didn't look cool to be wearing them. <laughs> but they were more pitching a, you'll be out in the real world wandering around, and I don't think that's the pitch for the Vision Pro. Um you know, people coined the expression glass holes, you know, because there was all this anxiety about having people filming you in real life in a way that it wasn't obvious that necessarily you were filming. So there were those concerns, not that people aren't filming everything every second anyway. Um, so that's Google Glass. Park it. Magic Leap in 2015, they announced a product that didn't launch until 2018. And at that time, it cost $2,300. They sold about 6,000 of them. Um, it had you know, challenges with limited field of view and questionable image quality. 
Uh, last year, they released a new AR Enterprise headset priced at $5,000. Okay, so now you're starting to go, they've also made that decision, we need to upgrade the tech this much, it's going to cost about this much. So they're in the ballpark. Microsoft, 2016, they had the HoloLens. And they've had success with that. And that's, this is to do with Microsoft's, you know, I guess, canny business strategy. Rather than going for an, a consumer and entertainment view, they went much narrower and, and niche with their focus. Um, so they're looking for uh, specialist users like surgeons and engineers and other technicians. Um, so in 2019, they had the HoloLens 2 come out. And that was then priced at 5600 So you're starting to see that there's two paths here. You're either going sub $1,000 consumer entertainment sort of product or the, like, the best of the best, you know, maybe it'll get cheaper in the future, you know, over $5,000 US sort of benchmark at, the po- at this point. Um, Do you, you get the sense that these are workplace units that potentially would replace a laptop, for example? Or... Yes, and that's that is how people are managing to make the case for will I will I move into this? And I, I canvassed a bunch of friends, and I'm just like, okay, we work in tech. Who's getting this? And most of them were no. Until I went to one very specific tech forum that I'm on, and that was the place where people are like, well, with the portability, um, with the the density of, of you know quality of the image. Um, I can not have a monitor, I can not, you know, project things, I can have privacy but immersion. Um, I think they're being too optimistic but, you know, they're making a case for They want it, they're excited, they want to try it, you know, so they're making a case. So let's let's talk about, you know, the why are they doing this? Um, it's a massive gamble. So Apple's often swooped in at the right time. Like we've said, they've had a strong record reinventing the desktop computer you know they've been really successful with ipads and ipods and uh airpods and apple watch and what have you and but tim cook is rumored to maybe only have a few more years at the company before he retires and he's thinking about his legacy he's often spoken about as a safe businessman he's sort of damned with faint praise you know oh you know safe pair of hands and what have you but he's not a visionary he's no steve jobs which may be true, this is undoubtedly a very clever, you know, person. Um, but, you know, will this be his legacy? And is he thinking legacy? The rumours are that he is. So, you know, who gets to make these big bets? Who will people allow to invest a billion dollars in R&D on a new unproven tech? Well, you know, he's, he's in that privileged position that he can do that and also Apple's, you know, sound financially so they can do that. So, you know, good on them for taking a big gamble. It's very interesting. Um, But the risk is super high. So let's talk about some of the cons. You know, we've heard criticism about um, the idea that we'll spend more time in front of screens and just that idea that um, particularly during lockdowns, people made so much money out of us spending more time in front of screens and that, that cynical sort of aspect of locking people in... Um, but I don't think many people are at risk of that, do you? Like, you know, we're not we're not looking for a life where we're logged in all the time and the battery life alone, it only <laughs> goes for two hours. You know. You're right. But I suppose, yeah, the unintended consequences. We don't We don't know. Yeah. And That's as exactly you're talking, it. I'm like, is this gonna revolutionise cinema or video games or working from home or all of it? Or none of it. Yeah, that's that's right, and and that's I think that's the strongest point of the the cons at the moment, the doubt at the moment is what problem are you solving? Mm. You know, and and that's what we don't know yet. 
so some people have talked about, will this, you know, make meetings better? And I've seen the promo images, even one that I posted on Instagram. You know, a person in a meeting, they've got their slide deck on the left and they're t- seeing their colleagues in front of them. But I'm like, but you're not seeing you that way because you're behind ski goggles. <laughs> so your colleagues, are they seeing your ski goggles or are we transitioning to avatars so that we don't have the awful feeling of looking at ourselves in meetings all the time? Yes. If it solves that, maybe that's a winner. <laughs> wow. You know, but we could do that technically now. It just requires a bit of a cultural shift. Yeah. Anyhow, um, there's so much to unpack here. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, tweet at me at Plasmov if, you, if you're interested in sharing any of them. But um, we just don't know. No. <laughs> well, let's be early adopters and start wearing the ski goggles in meetings. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Writer and director Eleanor Lodkin's debut feature Strange Colours screened in 2018 as part of MIF, and now the filmmaker returns to the big screen with a follow-up petrol described as a magical coming-of-age story that doubles up as an existential ministry and following screenings. In Marrakesh, New York, France and more besides and with more to come, local audiences can enjoy petrol on the big screen and to tell us about it, the writer-director joins us now. Eleanor, welcome to, to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. It's our deep pleasure. Where uh, do you want to start? How much do you want to say about petrol? Oh my goodness, I, I don't... I don't know. It's a very uh, enigmatic film and doesn't give much away and I'm wondering if that correlates with your approach to it, how much you want to give away. Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I normally, when I introduce the film at film festivals, I uh, try not to say too much except to ask the audience to come with an open mind um, and to feel uh, f- to feel good about bringing their own interpretation. Mm. Um, so I, I kind of uh, allow <laughs> or ask the, the viewers to... Um, yeah, to to feel okay if they don't understand something that it's not um, it's not that kind of film where you have to um, things are going to be necessarily wrapped up. Yes, lives mm. in the space between imagination and reality. Absolutely, yeah. I think it, it the, the film is all about that tension of what what can we know, what is real, and, and our relationship between. Uh, ourselves and the world around us and the people around us and how uh, in search for connection with people in in this instance a friendship between these two young women in in the pursuit of that friendship how uh, a person might come to contemplate eternal mysteries Mm -hmm. of of life. Absolutely. (laughs) And can you tell us a bit more about like the inspiration um, behind the film and, and your process of bringing it to life? Yeah, well, the despite the story being very open and enigmatic, as you say, uh, it is very much grounded in an exploration of a friendship. So it has a very simple narrative, um, and the arc kind of bends around the, uh, you know, the ebbs and flows of. Uh, a complicated and at times maddening friendship and uh, the way that, you know, people become infatuated and then that might, uh, the current of the infatuation might change. Um, And, yeah, I wanted to, 
I guess I really wanted to portray that kind of relationship that I think many people probably would have experienced. I certainly have in, you know, especially the characters in in their early 20s. They're in these creative um, circles. They have aspirations to be artists, but they don't necessarily, they're not grounded and they don't necessarily know themselves. Um, And they're both young women uh, in, yeah, in... In, in pursuit of their uh, ambitions and desires and the way that um, those kinds of friendships can become so uh, confusing, I think. Mm. And, um, yeah, that, that, was, that was the kind of grounding, um, I guess, uh, the crux of the, yeah. of the film. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, but then I was inspired by literature and films and paintings to create a rush a lush and romantic world around them it makes so much sense that you draw on so many different creative fields because as you say it is such a beautiful and creative exploration of friendship and also of art making itself of of relationships and inventing reality i suppose as a viewer we are exposed to these various visual influences and you've described a collage methodology Mm. bringing dreamscapes and sort of playing with genre and sort of grounding it in Melbourne because it is very beautifully of this city but also taking us into imaginative spaces as well can you talk about how you navigate that as a creator bringing all of those different well I guess the film um uh, takes as uh as its material both very banal and ordinary moments of normal life. So it has this kind of observa- observational aspect. Um, and it's set in... It's meant to be actually set in 2014, which I think is not very clear, probably, but it's it's just... It was like our guiding um, principle that it's just a little bit in the past. So it's just a little bit off. But, you know, it's very normal, everyday reality of um, Melbourne life, city life, uh, an Australian city. And uh, at the same time... Uh, the dream reality and the imaginative reality of the inner life of the characters. So my ambition was to uh, take both those things as equally valuable and real in a way and that sometimes it's you can't quite unravel the, the, the real and the imaginative or the, ima- the imagined. Uh, so in the film uh, kind of throws everything together and it's all... Uh, it's all it's all taken as normal uh, because I think that that you know that's what you can you can do that in a film uh, and you can experiment with those um, I guess uh, juxtapositions and so the surrealist collage methodology seemed very apt to me. Um, there's some elements in the film that are you know people prefer to as surrealist. They clearly. Um, clearly have that surrealist kind of um, bend. But uh, I think that, yeah, the real way that I consciously was drawn to the surrealist methodology was that kind of collage, juxtaposition, uh, taking things and putting them together and seeing what happens in between uh, in, in, yeah, in creating that, um, the cinematic world of the film. Before we delve back into the film, uh, tell us about its reception. Uh, you got a pretty praiseworthy note in The New Yorker. Is that a bit of a die-happy <laughs> uh, development for a young filmmaker? Well, um, it was actually it was very surreal for us, appropriately so. <laughs> um, yeah, we, 
absolutely didn't expect it. And my producer and I were just having a, uh, a burger and chips ahead of one of our screenings and having a drink and then she went to the bathroom and I was just sort of on Twitter and I was like, wait a minute, what is this? Is this us? And then she came back and apparently like my face was white and I just turned non-verbal because I couldn't, I was like, couldn't, I didn't know how to speak. And she was like, what happened? Are you all right? And I was like, ah, I showed her my phone and she was like, oh my God. Um, just yeah, to, so to really bring great. everyone up, Richard Brody said, I'm impatient for whatever Lodkana will do next, which I imagine was have a panic attack and drink, finish your chips. Well, yeah, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I, I actually couldn't read the article for a while because I was like, okay, I, I'll read it, I'll oh. deal with this later because it's <laughs> too much. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, it was. I think that with reviews, um, I just try not to kind of pay too much attention to them, whether they're positive or negative, because it's, you know, for your own sort of mental attitude, it's not, it's not important. It, it, but it is what's, where it's important is um, for the film to thrive and to reach audiences. All the support we get and um, all the media attention we get is really... It, it's just wonderful. Mm. So, and you know, I, I really like Richard Brody's writing. <laughs> yeah. So I was, it was thrilled that he understood the film and was able to talk about it so eloquently to the to his readers. Oh, just so on funny. the themes of the film as well, that you've spoken about infatuation. How important or prominent are creative crushes in your uh, yeah. in your life? Huge. I think <laughs> that you know, uh, I think part of the creative life is. Of falling in love in a way all the time, you know, with everything uh, around you and, um, y- y- you know, whether it's people or films or um, artists from the past or writers or even, you know, the, the wonderful meal your friend prepared for you. <laughs> I think, you know, you- you're always looking to um, be charmed and infatuated with life. Uh, or that's the aspiration. Obviously, it's not always possible. You're not always in the mood. But, mm. you know, I, I, I aspire to that, um, yeah, in in, the, in my daily kind of life. Yeah. Were there any particular artists or people or things that were like a guide that you kept going back to to complete this project? I mean, I looked to, towards a lot of 19th century literature actually um, and ghost stories and like the gothic stories and also um, I guess female artists mm-hmm. um, and the the kind of stories of you know Eva Hess or uh, Anna Mandietta and uh, I, I don't know they're always yeah. just um, and, and writers like Clarice Lispector and I, I'm just kind of Throwing out random names right now because I wasn't really prepared for Sorry, the question. Sorry, I really but put I you on the spot. <laughs> I was just trying to think of, yeah, like the, the kinds of f- figures that I probably was coming back to during yeah. the writing of the film and um, and probably in ordinary life as well. Well, yeah, and you work with two incredible actresses in the film. Like you said, it's centred around their friendship. So the film... Um, co-stars Natalie Morris and Hannah Lynch. What was it like working with them or what was your process working as a director with the actors and them embodying the characters? They, I, I mean, I feel like we were so fortunate for this film to um, work with Nat and Hannah um, and, you know, it's one of the most challenging aspects of making a film is finding the right actors for mm-hmm. the parts. It's such a sensitive and difficult process and 
even you know even just casting people uh you you're really in the deep end you don't have much time and you have to trust your intuition and you disappoint a lot of people who who want the parts and um but when you find you know when it works it's like everything was worth it and uh they i just I, they really make the film they're extraordinary um i think one of the most exciting actresses working in uh, their respective countries. Hannah Lynch is actually from New Zealand um, and it was a big challenge for us to get her out here during the pandemic, uh, but it like worked strangely. It, there was like some magic in how we were able to get her back just before the lockdown started and get her out for the pickups and it was, it was crazy. Um, but they, the other thing that's quite interesting about their dynamic is that they went to drama school together, which is we cast Natalie first and then she actually recommended Hannah um, a bit later down the track and um, we loved that they had this dynamic. They were f friends in real life and they brought so much depth to um, the relationship that you see on screen. Um, so, yeah, I'm very proud of the work that they've done and they taught me a lot as well mm -hmm. on set and um, Nat always one of the things that she said when we first met was I think acting is about listening and I, I really loved that I thought about it a lot because I think directing is so much about listening and it's something that I'm learning mm. still absolutely and speaking of listening can you talk to us a little bit about the sound of the film maybe the music the scoring and sort of yeah the, the atmosphere that you're creating here I'm, I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk about it today uh, because it's it's another part of the film that I'm very proud of and have, you know, a, a, a strong kind of emotional attachment to because, um, well, first of all, I worked with um, Mikey Young and Raven Mann, uh who composed the score and uh, they also uh, created the score for Strange Colours. Um, and so it was wonderful to collaborate with them again. And this time we had... Uh, more resources we had a big budget and we were able to uh actually record the music live at new market studios uh and with their really wonderful musicians there and um you know so yeah it has this kind of organic we, we wanted the music to feel romantic and have that organic um film score uh, uh feeling about it and that was uh contrasted by the diegetic music in the film that is, uh, you know, appears in the party. Because there's a lot of party scenes, obviously. It's, you know, Melbourne young people uh, world. And uh, for, for all that, we worked with um, uh, Gemma Burns, who is an incredible music producer, uh, music supervisor, um, working like I think really top of her game working in Australia today and she collaborated with uh, Efficient Space label um, for to look for you know really interesting local independent artists and uh, so that was part of our ambition as well is to create this sort of encyclopedic sound of Melbourne uh, of a certain time um, yeah so we you know we have really great artists featured in the and, and great tracks featured in the film and I think it has like a it, it came together because it has like a particular vibe yeah no it um, sounds extraordinary yeah it's incredible yeah and um uh yeah I, I I feel like I'm not gonna start listing the artists 
because I'll leave someone out right now, but yeah. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> watch the film. Uh, you have to watch the film and then to. look out for the songs in the credits. Exactly. Typically enigmatic from Eleanor Lodkana. <laughs> uh, petrol screens at Cinema Nova tomorrow, followed by a Q&A with the writer-director who's joined us this morning. You can go to petrolfilm.com for more details. Uh, Eleanor Lodkana, thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure to talk about the film. Triple R. I had a quiet weekend, but the the share there was a share house around the corner from me that that had a big house party. And I don't know about you two, but I love it when I sense that there is a party happening love in the neighbourhood. Yeah, I was actually thinking it feels very quiet out there at the moment. Mm, does it? Just in general, in right general, now. Yeah. I, as far as like where we are at this very present moment in time, outside, I don't get the sense of a lot of activity. Just gazing no. out the window, I feel like it would be nice if there was a party happening. It would bring a bit of energy in. <laughs> no, but it, it, I love as well seeing all the cars parked in the street. But I think this was – I feel like that's a kind of different kind of – that's more of when people drive, it's not necessarily the house party, it's more of a barbecue party. Yeah, I just love that feeling of the, the build-up, the anticipation to this event. I'm like, oh, it's happening. People are rushing in and out throughout the day. <laughs> it was quite a, a cute scene, like without going into too much detail, but I do like to – well, this sounds so creepy, but I do like walking past the, the share houses in my area, keeping just little tabs, you know, friendly friendly tabs, non-creepy tabs. This share house, from kind of what I've seen, is they've all got trades, I assume, lots of vans. Um, like during summer, there was like an inflatable pool and like a big large screen TV on the porch for the cricket or something like that. And then the pool was left like to deflate all of summer every day. I'd walk past me, oh, pool's still there and but I don't know I, I like kind of just checking in subtly seeing how they're going uh, so I walked past and noticed they were having a party because they were hanging fairy lights very important for house parties I think and they were also chatting they've got quite a friendly relationship from what I've observed um with their neighbor elderly neighbor so I think they had kind of popped in for like a pre-party drink. Oh, that's nice. Which is always nice. Good relationship with neighbours, making sure that you give them plenty of advance notice. Exactly, yeah. And that's, I guess, where obviously it's fantastic to have that atmosphere in the street, but obviously it can be inconvenience too. Sometimes parties can go late into the night. Fortunately for me, where I'm positioned, like I could hear it, but it wasn't too much of a disturbance. But I did get chatting with friends after kind of witnessing this i'm like oh there's a share house they're gearing up for a big party <laughs> like how's it going to go i'm reflecting on i guess my house party cv or um and times you've been like a disgruntled neighbor as well because i was i lived in a share house that we would have like a huge house party annually like it was massive so it was like on several occasions we, we would definitely give our neighbors notice but we'd go so late. They were the best parties. Just the thought of turning down the music just wasn't. We just couldn't do it. And, and when you say it was once a year, was this like an end of the year gathering? It was always in winter. Oh, winter time. Yeah. So, yeah, we would just kind of have it around one housemate's birthday every year and we'd go all out for it. Amazing sound system, lights. And it was just one of those houses where it was all brick. It was really sturdy. You couldn't break it. But, yeah, like no exaggeration on several occasions had um, the whole like 
maybe six neighbours on the doorstep just like, how dare you? I'm like, yeah, so sorry <laughs> about that, so sorry about that. Well, within their rights to be very upset because it would go, yeah, it would be very loud. But it's also funny when I, I find it, yeah, humorous in my head but intercutting like between having, being the host, having the party, not turning the music down. But then also typically when you get a bit older, like, when you when you do it for the first time where you tell your neighbours off, mm. where you're that person point. that you're like, you know what, like I'm cool, it's fine, but this is this has got to stop. <laughs> this is getting out of hand. Have you had that experience in the past where you're like, you know what, I think I need to tell them? Yes, I have. But do you know what, I've definitely had the moment where I was completely fed up. I was camping though and I yelled it from my tent. I was just like, shut up. And then in that moment I was like, who am I? Some other friends were reflecting as well. One of the friends who used to live with me and have these share, they had um, these house parties, they'd recently just had gone head to head with their neighbour who they're quite friendly with. And, yeah, it's, I don't know, is it... It's not a rite of passage, but I feel like it's something we've all done. We've all hosted the party, but then inevitably you will become that person who's also knocking on the door. What about you two? I build up points. I I, I don't think I've ever complained. Oh. And I assume that everyone's just keeping a respectful ledger. Yeah, that's a good point. So you're keeping a ledger, being like, all right, if I tough this out, then it buys you a few hours. Mm. For a party yeah. or, or noise. And I also don't want to rope in – I don't want to rope in a poli- the police. No, definitely not. No. Uh, but the – yeah, I, I. it's tough. It's – I don't know whether me sticking it out is – and gritting my teeth and bearing it, and it's rare, but is a symptom of uh, people-pleasing or yep. not wanting to upset a good time mm. or whether it is the ledger excuse that I've proffered. Which I still stand by. Yeah, I think you're onto something with the ledger. Definitely, like there's it's an a bit of give and take with your neighbours. Totally, sure. mutual respect, a bit of yep. an optimistic sense of yeah, generosity, mutual reciprocity. Yeah, uh, I mean, I've walked into house part. I thought that house parties have uh, a vibe where it was all comers are welcome. Yeah, maybe. at a certain critical mass. I have, you, have you walked into a I've house party? I've walked into a house oh. party. Oh nice. yeah. Mm. And I, I, I didn't feel, <laughs> I didn't feel that welcome. Oh really? Yeah. Was and it to thought... do with the Dunbar number? Do you think? <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, why would you feel welcome? You've walked into a stranger's house. Yeah. Like, get the hell out of here, Daniel. What do you think? This, this isn't a sitcom. <laughs> did, did you feel nervous the whole time walking around, being like, am I? Passing the host. Am I conversing with the host? Mm. Well, it was. I was on my way home, so it was just a pit stop. It's not like I'll put on <laughs> my f- favourite tie and wander into this house party. I just thought that'd be cooler. Yeah. But uh, they were not cool. I mean, I've had friends who've returned. Have you gone back to this epic, iconic house? Where I... Where you used to... Like, is it still a house party house? No, Do you know? no. It's been renovated. It's Yeah, it's... Because million dollar home. Th- there are share houses that persist through the generations. Yes, definitely. And some people have, I know people have gone back into their old bedroom. <gasps> oh, wow. And found a key or whatever, <gasps> or something they were missing. Amazing. And it's just, uh, yeah, there's something about the house, I, evidently the landlord, yeah. but that allows it to persist as a, a, a home and harbour frivolity. Oh, that gives me comfort yeah. knowing that 
that that's out there happening. I hope that's still happening. But is is was it? Does it matter if it's a Saturday night or? A, I mean, it's a lo- it was a long weekend, so. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was the Saturday. I lose track. Yeah, I suppose. Fr- uh, Friday night. No, I don't think it matters really. I think it matters if it goes through the day. Oh, okay. If it's a, <laughs> this is the the threshold. Maybe okay. I'm just thinking about it because I think talking is oh, that's terrible. <laughs> but I think people talking in the backyard is always louder than people think, and so if it's been going all afternoon into the night. They've been drinking all through the day. The talking gets louder. Then it becomes yelling. I think that could become grating if you're sharing a fence. If you're a couple of properties away, then I think you grin and bear it. Mm. Yeah. But I think if you are the direct neighbour, that, that I think that could definitely wear down my endurance. Yeah. If, what about a rule where under five you go to a bar? Yes. I like that. Dunbar. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel Dunbar Bird. <laughs> Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.